I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse and managing partner of Powerhouse Ventures. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our climate positive future a reality. How often do you think about where the electricity powering your home comes from? When you moved into your home, how much research did you do about where your electricity comes from? You might live in a state with a deregulated electricity market like Texas, which would enable you to make choices about your electricity, and by extension, whether that electricity is generated from renewable sources. If you're in a deregulated market and you didn't do much research when you signed up for a provider, you're not alone. As of a few years ago, only 13% of residential customers in retail choice markets participated in selecting plans. But 60 million residential single-family homes and apartments in the U.S. exist in deregulated markets. This represents 25% of the U.S. population and $75 billion in electricity bills. Residential energy use accounts for about 20% of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S., making it one of the most important sectors to decarbonize. Consumers increasingly want the opportunity to choose energy plans that are better for the planet and for their wallets. And a whole host of companies, not just power companies, want to offer their customers better insights about their home electricity use, want to help them go all electric, and need to adapt to a customer base that cares about climate now more than ever. But there are a few challenges getting in the way of achieving these goals. Clean energy suppliers struggle to find customers. Home electrification can be slow and expensive, and consumers don't have much confidence in the decision-making process. And the biggest brands in the world are realizing that climate impact needs to be a core competency in order to keep customers aligned with their brand. So in order to help clean energy providers connect with residential customers and help them save money on their energy bill, and to provide energy as a service insights to companies hungry to provide better offerings, we need a people-first, climate-focused power company. And that's exactly what this month's What It Takes guest, Naman Trevetti, co-founder and CEO of WattBuy, is building. So at, at WattBuy, um, Everything that we're focused on as a mission is centered around delivering affordable carbon-free electricity options for everyone. Um, and, and the way that we are trying to serve that mission is by enabling some of the biggest brands in the world, uh, those with massive consumer audiences, to activate and engage their customers with energy data and solutions. At WattBuy, Naman and his team are building a new kind of power company, empowering consumers, utilities, and a variety of companies from insurance to real estate to join the mission to decarbonize residential electricity and save consumers money along the way. So for the last few years, we've effectively been a consumer energy R&D lab that has continuously tinkered on understanding how we can help customers understand, engage, and transact on clean energy services and home electrification. We think of uh, WattBuy as having three key products. First is WattBuy.com, the only national marketplace for home electrification. The second bucket for us is AI modeling and data. And then the third bucket for us um, is what we call Climate OS, where we provide energy as a service. And enterprises here are actually building complete energy experiences for their customers by harnessing their platform. This three-pronged approach fits with the three-pronged problem that WattBuy is trying to solve. So we think of the problem existing in three big buckets. The first and biggest one is for homeowners, where the process of electrifying is generally very slow, painful, and expensive. There's not much confidence in the decision-making process to 
figure out if it makes sense for you to install an EV charger or decide on rooftop solar or even change your rate plan, you have to deal with utility rates, billing, financing, contractors, you know, all sorts of marketing schemes. The second bucket exists for energy suppliers. If you think of a solar company um, or an HVAC company or even a thermostat company, they deeply struggle to efficiently acquire customers. The tough reality for them is most customers don't have affinity with energy brands outside of companies like Tesla and Nest. And then the third bucket is for some of the biggest brands in the world, uh, where, where these companies are increasingly seeing that climate needs to be a core competency of any company with a massive consumer audience. In order to decarbonize homes by targeting consumers, providers, and climate-aware companies, Naman and his team are taking a novel approach to solving the expensive headaches faced by all three. I spoke to Naman about Wat Bai's mission to decarbonize the grid, from his childhood in Silicon Valley, to skipping classes at Georgetown so he could work in the White House, to founding WattBuy and building a platform that's been responsible for generating 20 gigawatt hours of renewable energy for homeowners and renters, and help them save upwards of $4 million on their energy bills. Naman, we first met almost five years ago. It was the spring of 2019 when Watt Buy was raising your pre-seed round and Powerhouse Ventures was very fortunate to join you and your team as an early investor back then. And we have been really impressed and inspired by you and your work ever since. So very grateful to have you here. Thank you so much. And yes, it's been a, a crazy journey, as I know you can attest to, but uh, it's been it's been awesome at the same time. Um, and it's been amazing having your guys' support. Naman, you grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in San Jose. Your dad was an engineer and an entrepreneur, and your mom was a preschool and kindergarten teacher. Tell me more about your parents and what it was like growing up with them in San Jose. In general, I feel very blessed and lucky to grow up where I did and how I did. Um, It was an exciting time to be a kid living in Silicon Valley uh, in the 90s. Um, I spent a lot of time Fry's Electronics and Radio Shack and um, and stores that uh, are now from a uh, you know a past era, um, but uh, but it was uh, but it, but it was really really fun um, is most of what I remember, um, and I, so so I feel very lucky for that. Um, like you mentioned, my my dad immigrated from India to get his master's at Case Western, um, and then he moved to the Bay Area to start working at Sun Microsystems um, and then at AMD. Um, and has kind of built a career in, in silicon chip design. Um, and he, he actually had a company of his own when I was really, really young. Uh, but I have flashes of memories of that, which is, which is exciting to think about now. Uh, most of what I remember uh, is, is what we now call swag. Uh, but back then it was just a thermos with his company's you know, logo on it and being thrilled uh, knowing that that was my dad's company. He was uh, you know, in, in semiconductors. Um, and my mom uh, was a preschool and kindergarten teacher and, and you know, has been for almost uh, 30 years, uh, you know, at this point. Um, and so, you know, I, I grew up uh, with a lot of focus on education. I would say a lot of focus on uh, community. Uh, you know, both my parents came here with almost no support system, uh, you know, outside of, outside of their work. Um, and, and they built it up on their own. And I think that's something that was a big part of my childhood, uh, spending a lot of time with uh, you know, uh, immediate family that were, were in the area, but also a lot of family friends um, in a big community that we would spend you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas and holidays um, and Mother's Day and Father's Day. And every, every time there was a reason to get together, we would get together. Um, and so I, I always felt like I had a really big community of support growing up. Th- there was another aspect 
of growing up in the Bay Area that I think you know many people uh, discuss now, but when you're in the moment, you don't really realize it, which is it was a really ambitious place um, to grow up. You have a lot of uh, children of, um, of immigrants that are living in the Bay Area, working at some of the biggest tech companies in the world, at a time in the world where these tech companies are uh, taking over as the biggest economic drivers in society, not just the Bay Area. Um, and so it created uh, some pretty interesting uh, uh, you know, scenarios where you notice that parents are actually pushing kids, and I think this was true you know, for myself as well, to achieve all that they can because you have a set of parents that have generally moved from across the world to find a better life for themselves and their kids um, in a very education-driven environment. Many of them came for edu- you know, came here for education to work in technology and then now are kind of pursuing careers and, and succeeding at that. And so I, I think I experienced a lot of that, uh, you know, as well, where, uh, you know, I was in an environment where um, everyone was really brilliant. Um, and, and there was a lot of, you know, if you, if you don't get all A's, uh, you're, you're, you know, maybe not doing so well. Right. And, and I don't think that matched very well with, with my personality, uh, you know, personally, because I really liked, uh, you know, school, but I also really liked, um, having a lot of fun, um, and spending time outside. And, and I think that's true for, you know, for, for any kid, uh, you know, that, that's just growing up. Um, and so that's something that I always found, um, you know, challenging, um, which is it was, it was an environment that was really ambitious and really competitive. Um, but, but I found myself kind of seeking out something pretty creative in that as well. Um, and not, not being the kid that was, uh, getting the straight A's and the the perfect SAT score. So even in high school, you somehow knew about and were interested in energy policy, which is a bit unique relative to what most high schoolers are into. You participated in debates, you interned at the Silicon Valley Leadership Group, and after finding your passion for energy policy, you wanted to be in D.C. So you went to Georgetown University in D.C., majored in energy economics, starting In your freshman year at Georgetown, you worked in the Obama administration, uh, first in the Office of Science and Technology Policy, OSTP, and then later in the Office of the United States Trade Representative working on solar. How were you doing all of this work at the White House while you were also a full-time student at Georgetown? And then what did you learn from your experience working in the White House, especially at such a young age? Um, Yeah, it's uh, so everything you said, uh, it's it's funny to think back on because... um, you, as you look back, you can see how the dots connect. Uh, but in the moment, I was really just pursuing the thing that seemed the most interesting, um, and, and you know that in itself was was kind of lucky to do. Uh, but but there was a piece of this, um, or th- there was kind of a, a thread in that that I think still continues to today that I didn't expect you know would um, you know would would be there, which was energy and and, and climate. Um, but like you mentioned, it, it kind of started all in high school. Um, I did a lot of policy debate and we had a topic my freshman year of high school, um, that was all focused on how can the United States promote the development of renewable technology, um, you know, in, in the country. And so we had done research on everything from rooftop solar to nuclear, uh, to hydro and all the rest. And I just thought this was, it was so fascinating and it matched my kind of love and interest in technology because it was at this juncture where uh, uh, it was it was not 
uh, you know, that, that technology was actually starting to boost the applicability and the development of actual energy systems um, and, and, and clean energy and climate change seemed like it was such a pressing problem that what better intersection of things to work on. So I had started, I had started with that um, and then I, I had kind of developed this love of policy and um, just understanding the impact of, of government, uh, which is what drew me to go to DC, go to Georgetown. Um, and I just kept pursuing that interest kind of further and further. And once I realized that you could do something like intern at the White House, and I, and I was lucky enough to kind of be in that position where I got to do that, um, I kind of stopped going to school. Um, you know, I, I did what was required, uh, but I spent a significant amount of time while enrolled at the White House uh, because the excitement and the learning and the growth that came through that was just unparalleled. You did graduate from Georgetown, right? Despite not going to class. I did. I did. Yes, I, I made it through. Um, but uh, but a, a lot of the time was spent um, kind of going back and forth um, because, you know, what, what you what, what I kind of noticed when I was there is the, the Office of Science and Tech Policy is one of 12 offices that has a council to the president. So you don't uh, have direct legislative power, but you have the convening power of the White House. In essence, if you, if you call from the White House, someone's going to pick up the call. Um, and, and not just someone, the CEOs of the biggest companies in the world, the leaders of the you know, biggest nonprofits and philanthropies that can kind of shift money and, and make decisions, other global leaders. Um, and so you can use that convening power to drive significant impact, whether it's through public-private partnerships, just in the private sector, just in the public sector. And I was able to be a fly on the wall and witness some of the most effective policy entrepreneurs go through their processes of getting things done. And sometimes that means uh, getting a line in the State of the Union focused on delivering new investments in, in a cancer moonshot. Um, or it might be um, on the Department of Energy Sunshot Challenge, driving kind of the price of solar, uh, you know, down below eight cents per kilowatt hour. Um, and so seeing that vast array of possibilities and then seeing them actually execute on it was far more exciting than anything I could have kind of imagined seeing or even working on. And so I just tried to spend as much time as I could uh, around those people and, and helping in any way I could. You met your future co-founder, Ben Hood, while at Georgetown when you answered his ad looking for interns to work at his fledgling startup. What did you do together at his startup and what did you learn from working alongside Ben at that time? Initial meeting of uh, myself and Ben was, you know, he had started a company called uh, Grid Potential and he was looking to build a company that had smart meters and mobile payment systems that would expand electricity access out in rural regions of, uh, of countries that generally have issues with energy access. So they were working in Haiti, they were working in West Africa and Ivory Coast. And the idea was if you could get mobile payment and actual ind actually individually metered homes, the utility would have more interest in expanding because instead of having to turn off electricity or load shed to an entire region of the country, you could turn it off home by home and, and have all the payment done through mobile. So if, if there's payment, you could turn the electricity back on. It was kind of a n noble effort, very kind of uh, uh, laudable. Uh, ultimately, 
became pretty difficult uh, to work on. Just a couple of Americans trying to work in Francophone countries and not having kind of deep enough experience in hardware. But that was really the first foray I had into energy entrepreneurship. Um, um, that that you know, and and the first time that Ben and I started working together. Um, the other thing I will mention that is pretty critical to the story is I was a college student and Ben, you know, had a home in DC. And so when I went home for the summers, he had a garage where I could keep my belongings uh, for the summer, which is kind of a critical aspect of our early relationship, but very thankful for that, that I did not have to pay for summer storage, uh, but also meant that I got to see him um, every time I came back and when I left. Um, and it started kind of forming a relationship where even though the initial company didn't work out, uh, we both had a deep desire to be entrepreneurs. We had a deep desire to help individuals with energy access and cost. Um, and that's where some of the initial brainstorms for WAPI started as well. So after graduating from Georgetown, you continued to work for OSTP for six months before making the hard decision to move back to the Bay Area and try your hand in the big tech world at Google. How did you decide to leave DC and to work at Google? And what was your experience like there? Yeah, that was um, that was an interesting um, path, um, you know, and, and I think it's tied a little bit to how I grew up and where I grew up and the early days of trying to understand what my kind of value system was in in what where I wanted to work or where I wanted to apply, you know, my skill set. Um, and to some extent, Georgetown was a pretty pre-professional place. You have a lot of folks that are graduating going into uh, you know, consulting at a place like a Deloitte or a McKinsey or a Bain, um, or into investment banking, moving to New York or to private equity. And I didn't really understand what what any of those folks did. Um, and and you know, the one thing I did know was you know there's some pretty big, exciting tech companies, um, you know, in the Bay Area. Um, and, um, and, and, I, and I had not kind of done any real technical kind of product work. Um, and so while I had, I had explored a lot on the policy side, it became pretty clear, um, you know, two things. One, there was a change of administration. Uh, but two, uh, the path of uh, working your way through government um, seemed to be a slower way to have impact um, than working in technology. And so, you know, I, I joined Google um, doing product management on the core ads product. Um, and, you know, while the experience of working at Google was excellent, the actual work um, that I was doing really didn't inspire me um, in the way that I was hoping that it would. So exactly a year after you started at Google, after you vested, you left in 2017. Uh, what did you do next? That's right. Um, so I, I left um, and I had, had the feeling on the day I joined and it was the same day on the day I left, which is amazing company, brilliant people. The work is not for me. Um, and so that conviction stayed. Um, and the, the immediate next step was calling Ben um, because we had initially, we had, we had initiated some of the work on the concept for WAPI um, actually back in 2014. So this was even two years prior to leaving, leaving Google. Um, and we had entered a Department of Energy competition uh, where we were trying to see if we could build some data sets and build some experiences that could help us estimate how a home uses energy. And then based on that, recommend the right plan for that home. We had done a lot of research in deregulated energy markets. I actually had done some of that at the White House too, where consumers have choice in these markets, 
Um, but we were trying to understand, has that policy actually provided the value that it's, that it's purported to provide, namely increased choice of renewables um, and, and decreased price? And what we had found is that not only was it, uh, you know, was, it, was it not doing that, but many customers felt like they were being scammed. Um, and so we tried to build something that would kind of build trust and transparency into this market. We had entered that competition. We had won it. We were pretty thrilled about that. But, you know, we were at different points in our lives. I was looking for my first job and, you know, was already working a full-time, uh, you know, position. Um, and, and we didn't do much with it then. But the impetus to leave, you know, uh, Google was, I would say, as much drawn with wanting to leave, uh, you know, my current workplace while also real itch to build a solution in energy, uh, knowing that it was a pressing and growing problem. Um, and so that was kind of the immediate next step is uh, we started picking up some of that work. How did you reconnect with Ben on that? Like who kind of pitched who and how did you two ultimately decide to take the leap to start WAPI? Um, it's, uh, it's actually an awesome, uh, it's a hilarious story um, and hopefully gives confidence to anyone out there who has, you know, a not easy, straightforward co-founder um, story, uh, which is I was, you know, sitting, uh, you know, in the Bay Area, and Ben was actually in Poland. He was in Warsaw, Poland, uh, because uh, his his wife is a foreign service officer with the State Department, and they were stationed in Poland. Um, and in a funny way, it created an opportunity because he was actually free of his job, um, and and uh, you know, doing some consulting work, uh, you know, with. Polish engineering companies that wanted to get U.S. clients. Um, and so he had time. Um, and I also had time because I, I, had, just, uh, I had just left uh, you know, my job. Um, and so I had pitched him on, I think, I think there is an opening right now as we're seeing uh, increased focus on, on, on uh, there, there's kind of increasing energy costs across the U.S. Electricity prices have been rising every year for the last five years. Consumers are becoming more and more knowledgeable about everything from electricity choice to rooftop solar um, uh, to EVs. Um, and we're seeing more and more customers making decisions around their home online and digitally. Um, and so there was kind of a nexus of these things that said, can we start thinking about putting this kind of business together? Um, and that's where we kind of started working, working together on it. What was the initial product that you and Ben envisioned? And then how did you go about building it in its initial iteration? Yeah, so you can actually see, even on Wattby.com today, the remnants of that, of that original product that we built. Um, so everything that we were focused on on day one was how can we help consumers experience trust and transparency as they go through a process of figuring out who their electricity provider is? Um, that was, that was kind of the user experience. And then the end result that we wanted for consumers was, can we save you money? Uh, because our expectation was 95% of the time, most people want their lights to turn on and they want to pay as little as possible. Um, and that's what we were going to focus on. That's what we heard from consumers. Um, and so the initial product was you enter your zip code and we will show you the plans in your area and we will attempt to show you what the savings potential is going to be based on general homes we have in your zip code and what this plan is going to cost. We had two partners. Uh, I think it was Direct Energy, which is kind of part of NRG, um, and we had we had uh, Constellation Energy. Um, so it was two companies that, you know, 
to this day, I'm not really sure why they took the bet to say, you know, let's uh, let's partner with this, uh, you know, two person company. But they said you can list our plans and we'll give you a fee if you're if you get customers that convert. Um, and so we we built that experience up. We helped customers sign up, um, and we actually linked you out to that company's website uh, to help you kind of finish that sign up flow. Um, and if you if you did that, we got paid twenty five dollars, something something small. Um, and that was the initial version of Wattplan. Coming up, Naman and Ben work to find product market fit and start fundraising in earnest. But first, a word from our sponsors. What It Takes is brought to you by Microsoft. In January of 2020, Microsoft announced a $1 billion climate innovation fund alongside an ambitious set of sustainability goals. Since then, the fund has been investing in innovative technologies that have the potential for meaningful, measurable climate impact by 2030. To date, Microsoft has allocated more than $700 million into a global portfolio of over 50 investments, including sustainable solutions in energy, industrial, and natural systems. They strive to be an impact-driven investor, buyer, and go-to-market partner to advance solutions along the commercialization curve and make them affordable and scalable for others. Meet 12, the carbon transformation company. 12's revolutionary technology converts CO2 into essential materials that has the potential to address up to 10% of total global emissions. Alaska Airlines and Microsoft have jumped on board early as the first commercial customers for e-jet fuel, their sustainable aviation fuel made from air. You can learn more about 12's exciting progress at 12.co, that's 12.co. And if you want to hear their founding story, we featured 12 founder and chief science officer, Itasha Cave, on What It Takes back in 2021. What It Takes is also brought to you by Shell Ventures. Are you ready to scale your work in the energy transition? With a dedicated $1.4 billion climate tech fund, Shell Ventures is partnering with innovative companies to build a lower carbon energy future. From renewable energy solutions to next-gen mobility and carbon abatement and removal, their portfolio of investments includes some of the most promising companies at the forefront of the energy transition. Portfolio companies like Ample, who are solving how fleets charge in cities using novel charging infrastructure and autonomous robotics. Portfolio companies like Avnos, who are pioneering a new form of direct air capture, turning a traditionally water-intensive process into a water-generating one and companies like Earth Optics, who are building a better way of analyzing how regenerative farming practices build carbon and other nutrients in our soil. Shell Ventures is more than capital. They specialize in unlocking deployment opportunities both inside and outside of Shell to help their portfolio companies scale, access customers, and commercialize their solutions. Visit shell.com forward slash ventures to learn more about how they can help your company reach the next level of growth. And now back to the show. So all of this initial product build you were doing with limited capital. You mentioned you had won this DOE Data Palooza Prize. This was 50K back in 2014. And when you started WAPI in 2017, the first capital into the company was a remaining $20,000 from the DOE Prize. And then in 2018, after a second attempt, you got into Techstars, uh, which came with $120,000 investment. And then eight months later, you raised a $900,000 pre-seed round. What was it like raising that early capital? And tell me about how product development and capital grew together. I would say it was certainly nerve-wracking and and uncharted waters being a first-time founder um, trying to figure that out. You know, when you, when you hear from other entrepreneurs that they've raised X amount of dollars, sometimes it's hard to even fathom 
what does one million dollars look like? You know, in in, a, in your company's bank account, right? And, and we had uh, we had twenty thousand. Uh, you know, after building some products and hiring some people to you know build some pieces of it, um, and we thought that was a lot of money. Uh, you know, for a long time that you know how, we we didn't even know how we would spend twenty thousand uh, dollars. You know, to start. Um, and, and so, you know, we had, we certainly had known about accelerators. We didn't fully understand what they did, uh, but we thought, you know, in, in looking back on it, one of the hardest things early on is you don't have milestones of your own to make forward progress. And, uh, for a first time entrepreneur to go through an accelerator, you start having, uh, you, you actually build your first milestone. And, and, and for us, it was actually just getting into a program that would give us six times the amount of capital that we had kind of in our bank at that time. And that seemed really exciting. It seemed valuable because we, we knew we had things we wanted to test, um, um, but, they, but that cost money. Um, so we needed, to, we needed to do some work on the product. We wanted to do some work directly talking with customers. Um, and, and so we went through that process to kind of get that initial capital. And I think what we learned through Techstars was all the pieces of, of, of early stage building that we did not know ourselves. And so that's everything from how do you sequence some of the product development? How do you decide um, your, your, your path to growing uh, your, your customer base? Are you going to be direct marketing to consumers? What is your distribution strategy? How are you going to do pricing? Um, how are you going to figure out what resources you need to get to this next stage of your company. And all of that is actually second to what is the next milestone for the company. And, and that is something that I think we learned there um, that, you know, I would say still to this day is a learning process. It's not something that we have perfected and, and no company really does because you want to keep uh, kind of uh, chipping away to figure out what is the real milestone that drives value for customers and therefore drives value for your business. Um, um, but that was kind of the initial stages of figuring that out. And so that, that first tranche of money, I think, helped us build a product that we could, say, solved a problem for customers. Once we started doing that, we were able to, uh, we were able to kind of start see uh, a little bit of clearing in the fog to say, if we had X more dollars, we might be able to achieve this kind of revenue. And so that's where we started the initial phase of figuring out that, that first fundraise, uh, which was the 900K, which, you know, Powerhouse was, was, a, was a big part of. Um, and, and that was really the first formal fundraise that we had in the company. So in 2019, you've raised a little over a million dollars. Who were your early customers? How did you get them? And what were those early customers paying for? So the, the early customers that we had right after Textures were all individuals. Um, so we had walkby.com up and running. Uh, we had a couple of, you know, marketing campaigns that we had for customers. And we were asking kind of anyone that we knew for a word of mouth referral. And if they didn't want to give a word of mouth referral, we wanted to know why, because that would directly impact how we built the product, because we wanted to know what is the problem that we could help them solve. Um, and so the, the early customer looked like a renter or a homeowner in Dallas, in Houston, in Philadelphia, in outskirts of Chicago, anywhere that was a deregulated market um, where we could help a customer, we wanted to figure out how we got to them, 
what problem they had, and if we could solve their problem. So that was your initial and originally only offering. And since then, you've expanded your offerings and created a portal to help companies deliver solutions for their customers to fight climate change by providing insights about their carbon footprint, electricity usage, their utilities. And then about two years ago, you focused the company on reaching customers when they're at a decision point in the home buying or home renting process, building APIs and partnerships that allow companies like Redfin to integrate your solution into the home buying process. That's quite the journey of product development. How did you go from iterating and expanding those offerings? And how did you know you had product market fit? Like, what was the turning point from chasing customers to providing a solution that started to sell itself? It sounds crazy when you describe it uh, in that way, because that is that is really the journey of the last three or four years. It was a lot of learning and listening. So, you know, as I was describing that early customer population, the hard, the hardest piece of it was consumers spend maybe seven minutes a year thinking about their energy bill. And so how, how we had no plan for how are we going to get in front of consumers at a scale that would make sense for a venture backable business. We could certainly help a couple hundred people, uh, maybe a couple thousand people. But the real question and the real impact that was to be had was at scale. And so what we started, what we kind of figured out um, that we might be able to do is if we could take some of these insights that we were driving for customers and actually find digital real estate, find other companies that already own that customer experience where you may think about energy in one way or another when you're making a decision to buy a home or rent a home, when you're making a decision on uh, ways to save uh, money on, uh, on your, your bills in general, whether it's credit cards or otherwise. If you um, have other appliances in your home and want to understand the energy impact of those devices, if we could plug in our data and insights and marketplace with those companies, we might be able to reach customers at these decision moments and actually help, help them make decisions that can help them save money and go renewable at those points in time. And so that's where we started first in real estate, saying, can we help customers as a part of that renting process or that home buying process make a decision on their electricity provider? And that's where we found partners like Updater, which is one of the largest moving services companies in the U.S. And over time, we started working with Redfin. And actually, on January 22nd, we announced our partnership with Rent.com, so one of the biggest rental marketplaces in the U.S. All can see electricity cost data, in homeowners' cases, solar cost data, and then we can take you to the walk by page for that home to actually show you the products that can help you save money and go, go renewable. So that was one big category. Another, another area that we have seen really good growth in is, is in insurance. Um, ins- the insurance industry is seeing that climate risk is a business risk uh, you know, for them, uh, with wildfires impacting the ability for companies like State Farm and Allstate to actually deliver uh, insurance policies in states like California, where they've actually stopped any new insurance. Um, and, and they wanted to build a, a marketplace for their consumers, uh, for their policyholders, uh, to actually help them build resiliency into their homes. So more and more, we're finding entire verticals that have historically not thought about energy, have not worried about consumers' energy, seeing and actually saying and acting on the need to help their consumers with home energy decision-making that goes beyond ESG reporting and actually doing something on behalf of their customers. And so that is the thread 
and the market fit that we have followed over the last three years that we see only growing. And, you know, we have certainly been, been lucky with the policy developments that have happened in that time period as well, uh, with, with the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act in particular. Uh, but all of this is pointing to a world that is increasingly becoming electrified, but needs to happen at a rate that is not happening. And that's where we want to help accelerate that as much as possible. You've come such a long way in product development, but the future of WAPI has not always been guaranteed or certain. And as you know, just about every founder on what it takes has been within months, weeks, days, or even hours of closing their doors. You raised a $3 million seed round in 2020, but before closing that round, you did not have much runway. How much runway are we talking about? And and what was it like closing that seed round given runway? You know, I've, I've reached a more... Uh, kind of stable position, you know, as, as time has gone on, um, the path to get there uh, was never certain. Um, and I think, and, and to some extent, is still not certain, right? That's that's part of the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial journey that I think that I've experienced and uh, uh, come to respect the most. Um, we we certainly had a period of time um, that was in 2020 um, that, was, that was particularly challenging where we had raised that initial tranche of capital um, and those initial believers um, have really given you a mandate to experiment and figure out what do customers want? What is the product that you can build? And the reality of the situation is as that money was close to running out, we didn't. We were maybe in the initial stages of finding the answer to that. The whole uh, story that, that I just shared on what we have figured out in real estate and in insurance and in fintech was in its initial phases. We had maybe one partnership. And it was, the data was really early. Um, and sometimes that's the way startups go. Um, you're, you know, the, the, the timing of when you get the answer you need may not match up with how much money is left in your bank account. Um, and so, you know, it, it led to a pretty difficult fundraise uh, where it was, you know, it was probably north of, uh, you know, north of 60, 70 rejections, uh, you know, of, of companies, of, of firms and investors saying, you know, not yet, but, you know, call us in, you know, six months. And what I couldn't reply to that with is in six months, uh, there won't be a company, uh, you know, to, to call you about. You know, we had supporters. And, and I think that's something that I have learned over time. And, you know, it's, it's tied to my belief in community and my belief in, you know, most people want to be helpful. Um, and, and having a network of people that want to help is maybe the thing that has taken us to where we are today. And, and if we move even kind of further from here, that's the only thing that I would, I would say really mattered is the people that, that helped along the way. Um, and so what we really needed was capital from investors that believed. Um, and, and that came in, certainly not on the best terms in the world, uh, but, um, but I think an important thing to remember there is, uh, and, and something that I have learned is you don't need to be a valuation maximalist. Um, you, don't, you don't need to make sure that every round of funding is perfect and makes you the best fundraiser in the world. Your job as the CEO, as the founder, is to make sure that you have the resources to get to the next stage. And we were lucky enough to kind of find the right match of investors that got got us to that stage. And so that was a pretty painful process that, that got us that $3 million round. But right after that is when things started working. And so sometimes, you know, fundraising and the company and some of these things work in the funniest way. I felt pretty horrible after that fundraise thinking, you know, we gave up, 
you know, probably north of 40% of the company. Um, it was, it was really tough. Um, and then six months later, as things started working, we had the best fundraise, um, in the company's history. And it was on a, you know, it was on a, you know, great valuation with a great investor, um, and on some terms that solved some of the issues from previous rounds. So, you know, that's another thing to remember is, uh, you know, in, in some ways, the only valuation that matters is your final one. Um, everything in between, you, know, you can you can work through some of the problems as long as your company is actually making forward progress in a way that that continues to kind of excite investors. But more important than that, drive customer value. Um, and so, so you know, a period I would say a period of pretty rough fundraising and, and a darker period of the company pretty quickly turned into one of the kind of best stretches we've had, you know, for a 12, 18 month period after that. Um, and so sometimes these things just uh, work in funny ways that, that you can't expect. But the, the only thing you can really do is just show up the next day. I feel like the greatest value of the show is entrepreneurs realizing they're not alone. And I think so often people feel like I'm the only one who just gave up a huge portion of the company. And that's part of the purpose of the show is for listeners to know that they're not. So thank you for just being so transparent and clear and... So then in 2021, you raised what you said was a really successful 13 million Series A, so a total of 15 million to date. Who has backed you along the way? And what have you learned about fundraising that you think other founders, especially those in the software space, should know? We, we, yeah, um, we, we, we have been pretty fortunate to have the support of some of who I think are some of the most uh, brilliant and compassionate investors in the space, um, which I think goes a long way in supporting Founders and especially first-time founders, uh, you know, as they go through the process of building the company and, and driving value, uh, you know, our, our latest investors from Schneider Electric and Amazon, um, the Alexa Fund, who participated in the last round, uh, but also uh, groups like MCJ, uh, the MCJ Collective, um, have been really supportive and, and really great, um, and Evergy Ventures, um, who who participated earlier and have doubled down. Um, and then I would be remiss if I did not also mention Powerhouse, who has now invested through three rounds um, with us. Um, so it's been uh, incredibly supportive to have investors who um, really provide patient capital. Um, I think that is maybe the thing that I have learned the most. Um, I have not had the you know bad fortune of investors that have pushed on, you know, when is there going to be an exit or when is there going to be another fundraise or what is the plan? Um, but but instead kind of have trust in me and trust in the kind of governance of the company to do the right thing for the business. Um, and, and so th- that's one thing I feel very fortunate to have given the stories I've heard from others where that is generally, that, you know, that, that may not be the case or there may be other pressures that investors have, which are totally reasonable, uh, but, but can be hard as you're trying to figure out and navigate the process of, of building your own company. Since starting Wapai in 2017, the company has facilitated $30 million in total gross market value, or GMV, in products that customers have transacted through your marketplace. You have saved customers over $4 million. You've generated over 20 gigawatt hours of renewable energy. What are the key ingredients that you think got you from your very first customers, those individuals that you were just trying to sell an energy plan to, to your customers today? It's all the team, um, I think, is is the main is the main thing that has driven us, you know, uh, to to where we are today. Um, you know, I, I certainly had, you know, Ben and I certainly had an initial idea, uh, but it's the the people that 
we work with that I think have actually executed and have have driven the strategy that has uh, expanded beyond you know even our kind of uh, our ideas as founders, uh, which I think is is maybe the most exciting part. Um, and and the team that we have is so excited about electrification and so excited about solving the problem, um, you know, in, in our small area of climate, um, that everyone feels like they have ownership, um, you know, of, of what they do. Um, and I think in, in my mind, that's, that's, that's hopefully the legacy that we will leave kind of moving forward is a team of people that can, can actually kind of do work to solve, solve real problems. Something that I think I learned for the first time at, at a place like OSTP and has been kind of our core philosophy at Wapai, uh, where everyone feels like an owner. Um, and in that kind of philosophy is the actual work of building the partnerships with companies like Redfin and with State Farm and the product work on Wapai.com um, and, and a lot of relationships uh, with people that have spanned two, three, four years where sometimes you start those conversations with a partner or a customer uh, that don't make sense for the first six months. Uh, but they see you as a small startup, build more progress, build more products, so- solve more problems for customers, and they come back to you. And so the piece that I find the most rewarding, but I think is also the most valuable, is sticking with it. And the fact that it compounds over time. And it's very hard to see that in year one or two or three. But starting in year four, five, six, seven, it snowballs in a way that is almost unbelievable. And so I think we are maybe at the beginning of that, of that snowball and it's, it's your uh, five and a half, six, you know, it's, uh, but if you think about that 2014 date of the department of energy data Palooza, we're in your 10, uh, right? So there's many ways to look at our timeline. Um, and, and, and we're still early, we're still really early, but some of that kind of work and nurturing of those relationships and you help people that, 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 uh, that need you right now and, and they come to you later is just a very true thing that I think happens in the world of, um, of, of startups. Um, and, and I think especially true in energy as the uh, ecosystem, you know, develops. And I think, you know, you have probably also seen has developed so rapidly just in the last few years, you know, uh, in, in the last three years, as opposed to maybe the three years prior to that. Absolutely. You mentioned team being everything. You have 25 people on your team today. What have you learned about hiring since starting WAPI? I'm not sure if this is a controversial take or not, but uh, my, uh, my belief is to hire for personality and not for skill. I think skill is second to personality. Um, and if someone is brilliant um, at their work, but doesn't operate well in the team environment, um, that's hard to that's hard to solve. If someone is willing to do what it takes and comes to work with a uh, with a with an optimistic practical mindset, the skills can be learned. Um, and you know, there's a little bit of uh, you know uh, difference you know in, in in the kind of role. I think there maybe that's a maybe instead of that being a uh, postulate it's really more of a sliding scale um, and it kind of it, it, it kind of depends a little bit on the role but in general um, I think that the the lessons that I've learned are kind of the focus on um, personality as opposed to skill 
one of the other main things that um, is hard to know as a first-time founder, but you realize as you hire your first 5, 10, 15 people, is that everyone that joins the company at that stage is injecting some of their DNA into the company. And the culture of the company is, you know, is, is certainly a large part of the founder's personality and the founder's belief in what matters. But the initial for initial five or 10 people play a big role in how rituals are built in the company, how traditions are built in the company, and the way that certain work is done, in the way that you respond to conflict, in the way that you respond to uh, existential problems that arise in the company. Um, and, and how those people show up will define the culture. And it's very hard to predict how that's going to happen, but you have to be very aware of it to make sure that you're building a company that you are excited to work at, uh, but you're, you also want to to make sure others are excited to work at. If you could go back in time five or six years ago to 2017 when you were founding WattBuy, what advice would you give yourself? Also, weren't you 22 at the time when you founded WattBuy, which I don't think I knew at the time, but I know now. And if so, what advice do you give your 22-year-old self? I was 22. Um, the... So I think I think there is there is a piece of that um, that I think played a role, right? Um, uh, which is at that point in time, it was a lot of worried about being too young about it, um, and and you know certainly some imposter syndrome that maybe lasted for two or three years. Um, the thing I, the thing I've come to believe now is that if you feel imposter syndrome, it means you're doing something worthwhile. You don't feel like an imposter for doing something that's easy. Um, so. The sense, the sense or feeling of imposter syndrome, I think, is a positive thing. Just feel it. Um, you know, that, that's kind of one of, one, of the, one of the things that I think I now, I now strongly feel about. Anyone that tells me they have imposter syndrome means that they think they are doing something worthwhile. Um, but I would say more important than that, um, the thing that maybe is still hard is, um, is to kind of to, to look around and, and be proud and, and enjoy it um, because it's, you know, uh, most of the experience is quite uh, stressful and lonely. And there are these small glimpses of moments where you're thrilled, right? Where you get a, you get a great customer review of what you built or uh, you kind of successfully close a deal that you've been working on for six months or you finally get to announce a new product launch or, or, you know, what, what, whatever it might be. And, and those moments come and they pass and you're happy for a day. And then it's back to, and then it's kind of the next set of problems that you need to solve. Um, and so it's, it's very hard to truly appreciate the journey of building the company, but kind of knowing that those moments of kind of excitement are pretty fleeting to, to kind of have, to have a little bit of appreciation for that process. Um, would be maybe the thing that I wish I wish I had started earlier. I think I think I certainly you know have more of it now, uh, but even now it's still difficult to to actually act on that uh, you know as you're going through it. I love that. Celebrate the wins. Um, I ask all guests some version of this question based on who they are. Can you speak to your experience as a Indian American man leading a climate tech company in an industry that is majority white, majority male? That's a really interesting question. My take on that is I think Indian Americans are maybe the second most privileged people in society 
um, after after white males. In general, the the way that I grew up, um, I have generally seen Indian American males as leaders in technology companies, and in the last several years, many of them have actually, you know, reached that position. Whether it's Satya Nadella as the CEO of Microsoft or Sundar Pichai as uh, you know CEO of Google, um, but um, but but it's something that I've I've thought about that I've I've thought about, but I don't think I have to think about as much as other groups, uh, you know, that are uh, entrepreneurs, uh, you know, have to think about. Most of the stereotypes um, are, are positive. Actually, I would say one of my biggest challenges that I have is people assume I am an engineer um, or I have a technical background, and I do not. Um, and maybe that is the most shocking part about me being an Indian American male CEO. Yeah, I would say that is actually my main experience. Um, is um, It's actually been one of, of privilege um, as opposed to um, something that I've had to think about. That has not been the case in many other aspects or other aspects of my life, whether it be being a student at Georgetown, which was pre- predominantly white, in, in other workplaces, uh, but specifically in the startup world and specifically in technology and specifically in interacting and dealing with investors, um, there is actually quite a lot of, of, of you know representation. So I see it kind of incumbent upon myself to be aware of that and actually kind of work with and, and help entrepreneurs that don't have that same level of access um, that I feel I have actually had, uh, you know, in the time that I've been working on this. You are a partner to your wife and a CEO and founder. What is it like being both at the same time? That's an awesome question. I would say it's, it's the best part of the whole experience um, is, 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 is the way I think about it. Um, you know, my wife is a doctor. She is finishing her fellowship um, in, in cardiology. In many ways, uh, the best part of kind of working on what I do and her working on what she does is they're so vastly different, but we, we deal with so many of the same things in our day-to-day work that we can share with each other and completely understand. Um, and they're, they're both high intensity. Um, I, I do not do anything uh, that deals with life and death um, in the way that she does. Um, so I am reminded when I talk about how intense my day was that no one no one had a heart attack, and I'm thankful for that. Um, you know, in in, uh, in 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 my ability to kind of manage, uh, you know, what what I can. Um, but um, I, I think it's the it's the piece of the work. It's it's the piece of my day to day life, not the work that that keeps me going. Um, is is knowing that we're both supporting each other in in you know pretty exciting careers that are kind of really, really focused on, on trying to make impact. What will the future of providing more affordable and accessible renewable energy solutions and decarbonizing the electrical grid look like a decade from now? And if WattBuy succeeds, what does the company look like in a decade? Our vision is that every company is a climate company. Every company is an energy company. We want to create a world where in not that long, in, in three to five years, we want you to be able to sign up for Prime Energy. We want you to be able to sign up for Walmart Plus Energy. We want you to be able to sign up for Costco Energy. Because as the world continues to electrify, the biggest brands and companies in the world will see that energy can actually be the biggest pillar of their business and they can drive so much customer value by engaging and activating their customers with energy data, energy plans and solutions, and actual products for their home. And so we hope to be a software platform that powers some of the largest companies in the world 
to become your everyday energy company. All right. We are going to close with our high voltage round. These are quick questions, quick answers, quick like a couple words. Starting with, Naman, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? Um, I would be a leopard because I am very lazy and I want to relax. But when I want to strike, I want to strike. What inspires you? Um, so I would say what inspires me is uh, like le- leadership, uh, wanting to be, a, wanting to be a, a great leader. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? Professional tennis player. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? Uh, my wife. What lesson has taken you the longest to learn? That's a good one. The truth will set you free. Did it take you a long time to learn that? Uh, yeah, I think so. Because I mean, I, the, the way I think about it is like wanting to paint a good story of like a bad situation versus like, like especially with the company, like if there's bad news, there's bad news. Share it, move on from it. It's, you know, it's not like, oh, we lost this partnership and like, but there's good things that are going to come out of it. Yeah. What's the best investment you've ever made? Getting a dog. What's your dog's name? This is Coco. What is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? That age defines experience. Who has had the biggest influence on your life and work and why? Um, I would say uh, the person that's had the biggest impact on my work and life is Barack Obama, and and uh, it's I think it's because of his model of servant leadership. When are you your best self? At six in the morning before anyone else has woken up. What is your worst trait? I'm addicted to chocolate. It's a real oh, problem. But it's so good. Is it a problem? Because if, if, if it's a problem, I also have the problem. <laughs> if I if there is no chocolate in the if there's no like reasonable chocolate to eat in the house, I eat from a bag of chocolate chips. <laughs> I don't I don't see the problem. Let's move on. If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Remove anger as an emotion. Interesting. Say more. I think I think we'd achieve a lot more if people were nicer to each other. If there was just one person who was going to hear this episode of What It Takes, who would you want it to be? Andy Jassy, CEO of Amazon. And what would you say if he was standing in front of you right now? It's time to build prime energy. All right, finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because... Companies fail uh, because they don't solve a real problem for a customer. If you really knew me, you would know... I do half my calls sitting on the bed, artificial background. Success is... Success is time, time with family and friends. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have... Lived abroad. If the world knew me for one thing, it would be... Being helpful to others. I'm most proud of... Most proud of my team. And last question, to build a successful startup, what it takes is... My, I think my real answer to that is uh, na- naivety. Na- how do you pronounce it? Naivete? Naivete. Naivete. That's my real answer. I'm with you. I'm with you. If I if I had only known. <laughs> but good thing I didn't. Oh my God. If I knew what I know now, it would be horrible. Yeah. Uh, Naman, I'm so happy to have had you on the show. I'm so happy to be a backer of WAPI to see your evolution and growth, both as a, a company, but more importantly, as a person, as a leader. It's been remarkable. Thank you so much. Uh, can't wait till we talk again soon. And thank you again for having me on. Naman Trivedi is the co-founder and CEO of WAPI. 
Join us for new stories each month of founders who are building our climate positive future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse and Powerhouse Ventures. Powerhouse is an innovation firm that works with leading corporations and investors to help them find, partner with, invest in, and acquire the most innovative startups in climate tech. Powerhouse Ventures backs entrepreneurs building the digital infrastructure for rapid decarbonization. And our team is growing. We're hiring an associate to help us source, evaluate, and support the most innovative early stage startups in climate. Applications submitted by Friday, March 1st will be prioritized for review. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund forward slash careers. Love the show? Well, we've got an exciting announcement for you. At long last, we are bringing back select live recordings of What It Takes. Our first live recording of the year will be on Wednesday, April 24th at Powerhouse in Oakland during SF Climate Week. The guest will be announced and tickets will be available soon. Whether you're a first-time or long-time listener, you can support the show by giving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. We read and appreciate every review and read some of them on the show including this one from SK111, who said, love the What It Takes interview style. This podcast helps to inform where we are in the world of energy. And if you have a friend or colleague who you think might like this episode, please send them the link. I'm our executive editor. Isabel Lee is our researcher. Christopher McGovern is our producer. And Jessica Macklin does everything else to make the show possible. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes. <laughs>